1: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Heretics Podcast. We're your heretics. I'm Graham Barlow, and with me, as always, is Damon Smith. Damon, how's it going?
0: Yeah, okay, mate. Um, to be honest, my mum died yesterday, so that's never the most pleasant thing, but she had a great life, very adventurous life. I think I might have mentioned the kind of adventuring she did, hmm. uh, and she was good all the way up to the end. Uh, miss her enormously. But you know, when when she had a long and happy life, I'd be I'd be very very happy to live as long as she did. I tell you that. I'd be absolutely mm. delighted. So so yeah, and she was she was you know good up to right up to the end. So so yeah, that's the way it is.
1: How about yourself, mate? I'm good, thank you. Yes, commiserations on your loss. Um, but like you said, Thanks, she, she lived a, an active life right to the end, which is all anyone can ever really yeah, ask I mean, for mate, in the I mean, end, she isn't did it? Stuff.
0: Yeah. She did stuff that would scare the hell out of me. I tell you. <laughs> so, you told me she yeah, did a lot of did, traveling
1: she, and things like yeah,
0: that. She did Egypt, just a, just a few highlights. She did Egypt during the Arab Spring. She did Galapagos. She climbed Ma- Ma- Machu Picchu when she was 80. Um, oh. She was off with the grizzly bears in Alaska and, you know, various other w- wild adventures she had. So um, she was a bit of an explorer, you know. And she's asked me to complete her final adventure because <laughs> she wasn't able to do it because she got ill. Mm. Uh, that was uh, to Svalbard in the winter. <laughs> oh, goodness me. Goodness. <laughs> uh, to see the polar bears, to see the polar bears. Hopefully can... not too close up.
1: Well, we yeah. could make, make it a patrons event.
0: <laughs> uh, it's not a bad idea, you know, mate. I could do it with any, any other patrons who are good with a rifle. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, we want them with us. <laughs> I don't, I don't like yeah. the
1: sound of polar bears. They sound a bit dangerous to me. <laughs> uh, I'd like to see them just like
0: at a, a considerable distance. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, same as me. I'd like to see them from a long way away where they're not coming towards me, basically.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, to, to, yeah, to that, eat me along. The, the Heretics podcast trip to Svalbard in the winter. The, the, obviously, the idea of the winter is to see the northern lights, right? So, yeah, so that'd be awesome, especially if any of our patrons can shoot. Because, you know, we're from the UK, we're probably not that good with guns. No, we're terrible. You're, apparently, you're not allowed outside the town without a gun in Svalbard. So. <laughs> we're not
1: that good at bears, either, being in the UK. <laughs> don't, don't really have many of them.
0: <laughs> not a lot of bears. We did once. They went extinct, didn't they? Mm. So, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and speaking of patrons, uh, just a shout-out to all our patrons, really. You guys are awesome. Uh, you, know, you give us a huge amount of support and we are eternally grateful not not just in terms of the you know, financial support and the logistics support and you know you guys have set things up for us and stuff like that but it's also just the moral support it's um it, it keeps us going and it's, it keeps us getting these episodes out so thanks ever so much i'm going to mention a few of our more recent either new patrons and or long-term existing patrons who've upped their support for us very recently, so uh, thank you to Dinkma, Jason Kadosky, Thorfinn Dernadin, Eric Wilkerson, and Mika Vikberg. Uh, thanks to all of you guys for the support and encouragement that you give us uh, on these, uh, getting these things out to the world.
1: Yeah, thank you guys. Um, it's really appreciated. Your your contributions are going to, to great effect with all our recording equipment we've got, and you know, just giving us the time to do this. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: I'm sitting in something that looks something like a studio now, and that's all down to you guys. (laughs) That would never happen. I mean, it's not a studio. It's a corner of my house, but it looks like a studio. (laughs) That's nice. Right.
1: So, I mean, Heretics is the the podcast where we we look at the world and wonder how we got here. What what, what made the world the way it is? Um, Mm. So today's subject is one of the things that made the world the way it is, but one that people... I think generally have a lot of misunderstanding about. Do you want to take us away on the subject yeah. of alchemy? You, you, you are
0: don't... not kidding. Misunderstanding. alchemy. Yeah. I, I guess like shamanism, alchemy is like misunderstanding central. <laughs> As Alchemy is a form of exotericism that has strong esoteric, I don't know, call it underpinnings or undercurrents. Mm. It's a belief system that is very ancient and has been, to a greater or a lesser extent, a hidden part of certainly Western culture, but also Middle Eastern culture. And also, there are actually links with Chinese culture as well, um, for more than 2,000 years, and possibly more than 4,000 years, depending on how much weight you put on the historical evidence that, that is available around the origins of alchemy. Alchemy is genuinely an old human practice that is clearly derived from shamanism. It's answering that old esoteric question, just like many other forms of esotericism. It's answering the question, sure, that shamanic stuff's all good for those guys who live in the woods Mm. and, you know, they're animists and they commune with the spirits of nature and have a great time. But what about us poor souls in the city? What about us agriculturalists? What about us herders? What use is all that shamanistic stuff to us? That's the question that esotericism over the years has set out to answer. And in the Western tradition, there are few bigger branches of esotericism than hermeticism and its closely allied discipline of alchemy. Mm -hmm. So where to start with this is also difficult because it's a multifaceted subject. It's a very baseline subject. And I saw somebody had said that through time, certainly up until the modern era, so if you go back up to about maybe 1900, the end of the 19th century, there had been more books published on alchemy in all of the years before that, back to the the start of the very first uh, published works, than they had on any other subject. Hmm. And you can think of people like Isaac Newton, who did an awful lot of work in his life and is super famous, but when people talk about 20% of the work that he did in his life, he's a genius, you know, he's the guy that, you know figured out gravity and stuff like that you know he's an absolute genius
1: mm.
0: but for 80 percent of his work he doesn't know what he's talking about let's not mention it yeah and of course that 80 percent was alchemy mm. and it may be well you know it may be well known that alchemy give rise to chemistry the kind of uh scientific discipline of chemistry mm. But what's not as well known is that alchemy also gave rise to other modern disciplines. The biggest one, and in, in my opinion, in an even bigger way than with chemistry, is economics. The subject of economics should really be called alchemical economics. Really? That's, because it's, <laughs> found, its foundations are entirely alchemical, and we're going to talk about why why that is. Oh. And... Well, long story short, no, let's not do a long story short. Let's do a long story reasonably long. So let's go back okay. to the very beginning. What is alchemy? Well, it comes from an Arab phrase, uh, which means from the land of Chem. The land of Chem, Chem is a, a very dark, very fertile alluvial soil that is the foundation or that was the foundation of the agricultural economy in ancient Egypt. So effectively, when alchemy says it's from the land of Kem, Khmeria, that means that alchemy comes from Egypt in the alchemical belief system, in the alchemical worldview. So what about ancient Egypt? Well, as you may know, Egypt is very, very ancient and goes back an awful long way. The first roots of alchemy, in Egypt, you know, we do have we do have a lot of information since the the hieroglyphic texts were deciphered. We do have an awful lot of information about Egypt. Uh, in in you know more up to further back than for instance the Middle Kingdom, the 2040 BC, so more than 4,000 years ago, we do have a lot of information about Egypt and, and its belief systems. In that worldview. In the ancient Egyptian worldview, I quite find the ancient Egyptian religion quite interesting. They had a a very cool religion. To me, what's a very cool religion? The ancient Egyptian religion. But nobody follows it today in Egypt. That's quite interesting. That, you know, the modern religions that to me are much less interesting than the ancient Egyptian religion have replaced. These older, more expansive, more interesting, flavoursome religions, mm. and the roots of alchemy in Egypt go back to the roots of Egyptian religion. There were gods. In, you know, we've said that when shamanism goes into settled, civilized societies, people start conceptualizing aspects of nature as anthropomorphic deities or semi-anthropomorphic deities. Mm. And we have gods, and they're famous, you know, Isis and her husband, Osiris. There's Horus. There's uh, Thoth. as Set, the baddie. So all these ancient, and, and obviously Ra, the sun god. These gods are super famous in our culture. And in the oral tradition of alchemy, one of these gods especially, but in a way all of them, two of these gods especially, Thoth and Isis are engaged in the early development of alchemy. Now, one of the notions we have, we're talking about alchemy in a background kind of way on this podcast. But, I mean, on this episode of the podcast, myself and Graham having some discussions offline, and we've said, wouldn't it be nice if people could actually learn something Mm. practical from the Heretics podcast, just like they do on the Woven Energy podcast. Well, obviously, we're not going to teach them shamanism because that's, we already got that covered on the other podcasts. Yeah. So we thought, could we actually get together and teach people alchemy, which would be more in keeping with our podcast because it has huge swathes of miasma associated with it. <laughs> and so one of the things we're going to start from, I don't know if it's the next Heretics episode, but the next episode that we do on alchemy, we are going to start teaching alchemy in this podcast, the alchemy tutorial working title, mm. uh, with some practical exercises and stuff like that. Now, do we believe it? Probably, you know, it, it is an exoteric belief system to a certain extent, so you can probably tell from my tone of voice that I don't entirely believe it, but does that mean I don't think there's any value in it? Absolutely not. I think there's a lot of value in alchemy in the alchemical tradition. We've also, on the podcast, we've also covered off a lot of areas that are imme- immediately relevant, as you'll see as we, as we go on, immediately relevant and position us well for starting mm. uh, episodes on alchemy now. We've done Corpus Amaticum, at least the start of it, Yeah, We've done a bunch of stuff about Rosicrucianism, which has a lot of al- alchemical links in it. We've done, a lot of, we've, we've done the recent episode of the Bible, Fits In, The Flood. Uh, Genesis that that all fits in so and and also the why Christians don't why Christians suppress the book of Enoch that also fits in really well as you'll see so we've done all these different things that sort of set a nice background for starting out on the tale of alchemy so let's get back to these ancient gods were they people maybe they were maybe they were involved in a form of alchemy called theurgy where they were ordinary people but they set out to make themselves divine um, in ancient Egypt we're talking about. So there's this woman, Isis, whether she's a goddess or a, a person, I'll leave that up to you. She wants, she knows that there is a thing called alchemy in the world. It's a set of secrets that are held by a bunch of people from somewhere else, which is often described as the firmament. The firmament is, you know, like the Bible talks about the firmament, it means the heavens, Mm. the stars. So you might believe that these people came from, you know, the stars. But it also could be a metaphoric, they came from far away. They don't have to be extraterrestrials or anything. But they're referred to in ancient Egyptian texts as visitors. They're known as the visitors. And they came from, quote-unquote, the firmament. Now, to me, this is a clear point that they were shamans yeah they probably came from somewhere that was outside of the settled civilized uh, community of ancient egypt the middle kingdoms kind of like the height of ancient egypt it's like you know it's certainly part of the glory days of ancient egypt they're very settled they have a clear governmental system they have a clear economic system they have a clear agricultural system it's a very organized kind of kingdom earlier than that There was still stuff like that going on in Egypt to a long way back, a long, long way back. And so these visitors come into this context from outside. You know, if you want to believe the way E.T., feel free. It makes no difference to me. I kind of like to think there were sort of shamans who came into that culture from a much more hunter-gatherer sort of society somewhere outside of that. And they started practicing their arts in secret inside Egypt, and Isis got wind of these arts, and she wanted to learn them so she went to the main temple of the visitors and she basically asked them, or asked one of them, one of their leaders, to teach her alchemy. Now this guy was quite keen on Isis's sport, always depicted as a very beautiful woman, and this guy was quite keen on her and basically he wanted to have uh, friendly relations with her, shall we say, that was his desire. And this fits in with all that stuff in the Book of Enoch, you know, with the angels coming down and wanting to procreate with human beings, um, this is the same kind of a model here. But actually, the guy, when, when she says the price for giving him what he wants is the al- alchemical secrets he wants to teach you alchemy, which he refuses. So he obviously wasn't that keen on her. So, but basically, he refuses. But that's how important, you know, how <laughs> secretive they were about this stuff. Mm. So Isis goes off and finds another visitor who she does manage to, she does manage to persuade to teach her the alchemical secrets that she then passes on to her son Horus and later uses to heal her husband, Osiris, when he gets, uh, when, when Set does the dirty on him. Yeah, uh, you know, um, you probably know about that, that tale with Osiris being chopped up and put into different bits of his body sent all over Egypt. Now, that's how he became the god of the underworld. He went to the underworld because he was murdered, basically. Hmm. And she manages to heal him with her her alchemical powers, among other things. But the idea is that Isis then taught it to Horus, who then taught it to various others. Um, And it got passed down in the alchemical tradition. It got passed down through the generations to eventually us. Now, the... Early, the early alchemical arts in Egypt were extremely secretive. There was a tradition of not writing these things down. I mean, the Egyptians were very literate, but there was a strong tradition of not writing these things down. There's another from the same group of gods as Isis. There's another god called Thoth, who will will be or Thoth, who will be very prominent in our story. He. Uh, Was known as the scribe of the gods or the messenger of the gods. And he was the one responsible for recording all of the alchemical secrets and disseminating them to the worthy, to the people who are worthy of them. And all of this was sort of baked into ancient Egyptian religion in the way that today esoteric practices are baked into our modern religions, like Roman Catholicism, for instance. They're not, uh, and Protestants. I guess Christianity, I mean, in a very similar way to the way that Rosicrucianism christianism is baked into Christianity, for instance. The alchemical tradition was baked into ancient Egyptian religion, but it was never really written down, but there are written hints at it. And one of the biggest written hints of alchemy that occurred in the ancient world, both in Greek and in Egyptian and Babylonian, actually, texts is this thing called the Emerald Tablet, which is like the foundational text of alchemy. The Emerald Tablet, which will form part of our tutorial, what it actually says and stuff, but I just want to get of context on it. The Emerald Tablet was an ancient artifact. In nature, this, the physical nature of this architect was that it looked like it had been conformed of something so that the, the text was in base relief. That is, the letters on the Emerald Tablet tablet stuck up above the tablet and that it was in base relief and And people who saw it said that it, it looked like something had been poured into a mold like molten glass but it wasn't glass because the thing was very hard and very strong like emerald that's why it's called the emerald tablet Yeah. it was very hard like a like a good quality gemstone but it looked like basically liquid emerald had been poured into a mold that already had the the text of the emerald tablet on it this artifact the emerald tablet was one of a large collection of writings which historically, which, not historically, in tradition, are associated with this god Thoth, the was ibis-headed god in ancient Egypt. A lot of texts about alchemy, I mean a lot, we're talking about thousands and thousands of texts, along with the Emerald Tablet, were collected together into two pillars as part of the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian religion. Now, this all sounds quite fanciful, except that we have fairly unbiased, fairly independent witnesses, very well known witnesses, who actually saw these things. These two pillars were often put on public display. So the I guess the public could go ooh and ah at how amazingly powerful and what wonderful secrets the, the ancient Egyptian priests had. So they often put these two pillars, and these pillars had loads of texts inside them. I don't know exactly the nature, but they're probably like storage pillars or something like that, plus the emerald tablet in them, which is like the foundation of the whole thing. These two pillars, they said one was like gold. Gold's a big concept in alchemy, obviously. That's what everybody thinks alchemy is all about, is turning lead into gold. And the other one was like emerald. And apparently this emerald one glowed in the night. You know what exoteric religious people do, right? They make impressive looking things. Like we have all these amazing European cathedrals. Yeah. <laughs> and those things are designed to impress the hell out of not very well educated parishioners. That's probably the best way to put it. Mm. So they had a similar kind of thing going on in Egypt. And the, the we know they could do these things. You know, just look at the pyramids, right? These guys were very capable. If you're capable of making a pyramid, you're capable of making an emerald tablet. That's for sure. So they made these two pillars. But who saw these pillars, who actually laid their own eyes on these pillars? We have some really famous figures, one of whom we talked about quite a bit, Solon. Uh, Solon saw these things in person when he was in Egypt. And also the famous historian Herodotus, who's given a lot of credit, almost like the founder of modern history, in that he related a lot of history in a not very embellished kind of way. Herodotus, modern historians view Herodotus as probably one of the best historians of the ancient world simply because he didn't embellish things and make things up. So Herodotus laid his own eyes on these things as well. So um, it's pretty clear that they did actually exist as physical objects. Now, obviously all of those texts recorded the secrets of alchemy that had been handed down, I guess, from Isis and Thoth and these sort of people. And they were handed down right through the Egyptian period, so you're talking about, you know, the Middle Kingdom begins, you know, 2000-ish BC. It ends, you know, kind of 1640-ish. And then you have that sort of second intermediate period in Egyptian history, and then you got the New Kingdom from 1530, yeah. uh, 1532, the New Kingdom starts, and then down through the New Kingdom. And then the New Kingdom ends around 1170, And then you've got what's known as the Third Intermediate Period and you sort of have a degeneracy in the ancient civilization of Egypt coming down to another period of time that we have talked about an awful lot, which is the period of Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. Alexander comes through that area, conquers Egypt, conquers Babylon, conquers all of that, all the way down to India. And that becomes, Alexander's empire establishes a melting pot although he himself didn't last that long, right? Was he about 33 or something when he died? Yeah, yeah. He establishes this empire that does have, parts of it do have uh, duration. And the, it, but, so it's all the Greek culture. You know, Alexander wasn't just an ambassador for Greek culture. His, his teacher, his personal teacher, was the epitome, the, the final kind of product of the golden age of Greek philosophy. It was Aristotle himself. So, so Alexander's bringing this Greek, the, the the results of the Greek period of learning, and spreading them across his own empire, but also make the, the Alexander and the people who followed him they tend to be quite liberal in religious terms. They tend to be quite inclusive, so they're making sense of their own tradition and their own culture in the context of these. The, the fragments of the ancient in in, in terms of Egypt, what you're talking about, the land of Chem, in terms of the ancient Egyptian learning. And one of the early things that they came to the conclusion when they're trying to understand the ancient Egyptian teachings with the ancient with the Greek, more recent Greek understanding of the world, is that Thoth, the messenger of the Egyptian gods or Thoth, is. Hermes, the messenger of the Greek gods. That's the, and hence, so Hermes is Thoth. And then in the Middle Ages, Mm. uh, Hermes got called thrice great, Hermes Trismegistus. So again, this is one of the the foundation of how these, these teachings were brought down to us. They're seeing that Thoth is Hermes, who is Hermes Trismegistus. It's this hermetic tradition that we've already covered off a, a part of with Corpus Amaticum. And, Arist- uh, and alchemy was a really, really important part of this ultra- overarching tradition. Now, Ptolemaic Egypt actually lasted quite a long time. But, you know, f- it seems like people sort of jump quickly, in history, they jump quickly from the I, who was Alexander's general, down to Cleopatra seventh, who was the one that, that famously, you know, fell in love with Julius Caesar and all that kind of stuff. Mm. as if that stuff all happened overnight, you know? Well, it absolutely didn't. You you could think about when Alexander died, uh, 323 BC, told me actually, you know, after, after Alexander dies, there's a lot of uh, argy-bargy between um, Alexander's top generals for who's in, in control of what. Told me the first Alexander's general establishes himself as the pharaoh of Egypt in 305, So that's 305 BC. Mm. And then, you know, you've got Cleopatra becomes Queen of Egypt, the the final queen of that dynasty, Cleopatra VII, becomes Queen of Egypt in 51 and and dies from suicide by poisoning, not making herself be bitten by an asp. That'd be a pretty unpleasant way to go if it worked, which it might not, depending on which asp you picked. Mm. Um, She just poisoned herself, apparently. Uh, In thirty in 30 bc so you're talking 300 years of this tolmaic dynasty of egypt now this is the fir- alchemy has two golden ages this is the first of them right it's Ptolemaic industry it, Ptolemaic egypt you have um alexandria the city which was became the world center of hermeticism and alchemy Founded by Alexander himself in 331, and then you have a succession of quite enlightened Ptolemaic leaders. You know, Ptolemy the first, Ptolemy the second, Ptolemy the third, which takes us all the way down to sort of 220 BC. Those guys created an environment within Egypt where there was an intermixing of Greek and ancient Egyptian culture. Far from suppressing what had gone before. They had a desire to actually revive it, to bring it out, to make it something greater uh, than it had been in the degenerate phase, in the, the sort of, you know, the the third intermediate period, in the degenerate phase of earlier Egyptian history. There was it, it was almost a revival of what had gone on in Egypt, along with the influence of the Greek culture coming in. So. Out of this context, and incidentally, Heliopolis, which had been the center, which is in in a northeastern suburb of modern-day Cairo, Heliopolis, in a million miles away from Alexandria, and it was also Heliopolis was a place that you know the Ptolemies had access to. It's not a long way from Alexandria. The, Heliopolis was the ancient seat of the ancient Egyptian alchemical traditions. So these things are all in the same area. They're all basically on the Nile Delta. Uh, that Alexandria being on the actual Mediterranean coast of the Delta and, and modern day Cairo, Heliopolis, is at the root of the Delta. Uh, and of course, there's Giza there and the pyramids and they say that Alexander was buried with a lot of alchemical secrets which were subsequently rediscovered and then buried, the most significant one much later, of those would be the Emerald Tablet, buried somewhere on the Giza Plateau. So if you fancy a trip over to Egypt... You don't have to do it during the hour of spring, like my mum did anymore. <laughs> uh, then, and you t- take your shuffle with you. I'm sure you'd be arrested if you did actually do this. But get out on the Giza Plateau, see if you can dig up the Emerald tablet. That'd be useful. But don't worry, we do have the text of it. And I'm going to explain why we had this, the, the text of it. Hmm. So that, all of this learning gave rise to this thing that's world famous called the Library of Alexandria. Now, you can think of the Library of Alexandria as a massive collection of books, scrolls, manuscripts, the vast majority of which were about alchemy. When I say a massive collection, more than half a million manuscripts were talking about in the original collection.
1: Mm.
0: So, and this, this cent- became a center, and that's why so many Greeks like Solon and co visited Egypt regularly, because it was such a center of learning and the Greeks were into learning so and they had because they're all under the same empire, they're all under the Alexander's empire. Look at there was an easy exchange with trade going on and stuff like that. It was very easy for them to go and visit Alexandria and the library. Yeah. So one of the things I'm going to give a little plug for now is the modern library of Alexandria. It's libraries is something in the modern world that governments don't really invest enough in. They're very and very important for human beings. They're a sign of what we are. And I was fortunate to do some work with both the British Library, the, the sort of national library in the UK, and also the libraries in Camden and London, which have long tradition behind them. Libraries are really important in life. And, and in our country, especially in recent times, it's a sort of sign of our degeneracy that the funding to libraries just gets cut and cut and cut and cut and cut by governments. So, you know, I would I would say to governments out there, If you want your country to be great, you know, if you want that, you need to encourage learning in your country. And there's no better way to do that than to build awesome, modern, meaningful libraries. And this is what they've done in modern Egypt. They've built this, not exactly on the site, but virtually on the site of the old, ancient, famous Library of Alexandria. They've built a new Library of Alexandria, which is, just look it up online, get some photos. It's a mightily impressive bit of architecture. And it's nice that somebody values learning somewhere in the world, you know. So just something you might want to go and do some research on the modern Library of Alexandria. So it's quite well known that the ancient Library of Alexandria and the texts and all the alchemical stuff that we're going to be teaching you in the tutorial, all of that stuff got collected together at Alexandria as a centre. But then, unfortunately, the vast majority, as as well as all the works of the famous philosophers Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, all these guys. It got all collected together. The Library of Alexandria was like the hub of the world's knowledge, if you like. Unfortunately, accidentally to begin with, there were several wars. You know, the Romans came and invaded and all this kind of stuff. And then there were various wars of succession to Alexandria. To Alexander, sorry. In in that time period, lots of damage was done to the library. It was burned a couple of times and lots of these books got lost. So we know that the Christians and the Muslims came and wiped out the remainder of the books in there. But actually even by the time I think that it was the Muslims who wiped out the very last batch of books. Uh, and the Christians did the second last batch. The the Christians when they banned all religions except Christianity, they apparently they dragged the curator of the Library of Alexandria who uh, was a woman out into the street, street and scraped the skin from the scraped the flesh from her bones using abalone shells? Uh, that's how um, Christian. That's how their Christian their attitude was towards librarians in those days. Mm-hmm. And then there was one of the caliphs. So so by but this time you've gone down from like more than half a million books to about thirty thousand books that have survived. And then the Christians first, and then the Muslims after that under one of the caliphs who said, basically, you know, if, if these books correspond with what's in the Qur'an, then they're duplicates, they're superfluous, and there's nothing wrong with them, but we might as well destroy them because we've already got the Qur'an. And he said, if they don't correspond with the Qur'an, then we definitely want to destroy them. So that was, a, that was one of the caliphs, I can't remember the guy's name, that distro- destroyed the last bit of the collection. But my point is that the collection had been in decline for a very long time. And one of the main reasons why it was in decline was not people necessarily destroying it, as the attitude towards adding to it had died as well. You got a a decline in Alexandrian culture within Egypt and more of a movement towards power struggles and religious intolerance and exotericism, the rise of exotericism. And that rise in exotericism that started at around this time—you talk about, you know, from moving from forwards from zero AD through to you know the, the period of the late Alexandrian alchemists like Zosimos, which would be around three hundred AD, and uh, people like uh, Maria Prophetessa, who be around two hundred AD. Those very famous Al- Alexandrian alchemists—they were the end. But it, you can see how they sort of correspond with, you know, on our very first episode, we talked about the, the invention of heresy within Christianity happening at around this very same time. We have the rise of exotericism, the decline of esotericism leading up into the Dark Ages. And so that's the, that's, that's, it's, you can see it as a, a declining period. During the Dark Ages, obviously anything remotely, to, to quote the Monty Python movie, burn her you know
1: that's
0: the thing if you wanted to get burned during that period then you're you know alchemy was a great way to do that showing an interest (laughs) in alchemy or esotericism or anything like that they'd tie you to a post and they would light the fire and burn you that was a hobby of the exoteric religions in those days and they would uh, actually they would throw homosexuals into the fire along with you to sort of stoke the fire Uh, for some reason these exoteric religions are really down on homosexuality, you know. They, the, these old wizened priests of these nasty religions of the Abrahamic tradition, nothing they like better than sticking their noses into people's private lives, you know, mm-hmm. and not in a good way. So, so that's where that uh, derogatory term faggot came from. The faggot was the logs that we used to stoke the, the fire, that was actually the early origins of that term, pretty unpleasant stuff to be honest. Yeah. And so, but not, all the Christians were pretty horrendous in those days. So think of the time period, from an esoteric point of view, the time period from sort of 0 AD through to about 700, uh, 11 AD. I picked that date very specifically for a reason. Most of the Christians were horrific. Quite a lot of the Muslims were horrific as well. But actually, there were a few of the Muslims that were fairly reasonable In those days. So they were sort of the heroes, the unsung heroes of the Dark Ages. And it was especially among the Arabs. And it was among these guys that the ancient alchemical traditions, combined alchemical traditions of Egypt and Greece, managed to survive that unpleasant period. And in particular, the Umayyads, the the people who conquered Spain, Hispania in those days, the sort of relic of the Roman Empire. Um, they brought with them the alchemical learning, and they translated a lot of the ancient Greek and Egyptian texts into Arabic. And so during this time period, you of 0 AD through 711 AD, unless you're in China, the only place you could find any knowledge of alchemy, really, in a big way, was among the Arab alchemists who, for whatever reason, became an established and welcome part of their of their Muslim society, uh, Islamic society. And so this, by by seven eleven, the Christians have had a really good go at getting rid of, you know, all, all traces of, or at least if you wanted to practice esotericism during that time period in Europe, you needed to go deep, deep underground. Nothing out in the open, everything in in total secrecy. So as I said, the Umayyads, Arabs conquered the Moors, as we call them, conquered Spain, and reintroduced a lot of this stuff into into Europe. And you can see the time period when they did that. You know, they, they started off in 711. They brought in the ancient learning about alchemy, and they built this uh, these flourishing empires that encouraged the arts, they encouraged uh, esotericism, even encouraged religion. You know, it's well known that uh, the Judaic religion, the religion of the people we now call the Jews, that was one of the few safe havens for them was ironically under this Muslim, this uh, fairly tolerant Muslim empire in Spain. And that lasted all the way through to the fall of Granada in 1492. Well, think about that date. They've introduced alchemy into Europe. Alchemy then gets picked up because the fall of Granada is just a few short years after 1483, the birth of Martin Luther. And, you know, it's all that time Christian Rosenkreuz, Rosicrucianism, the chemical wedding, all that kind of stuff. There is no coincidence here. It was the alchemical knowledge brought to Europe by the Umayyads, the Moors, into Spain that became the ultimate spark from which the Renaissance developed and from which our modern scientific tradition developed and one of the comments that I make about chemistry, for instance, as one of the famous modern scientific traditions that came out of alchemy is the vast majority of the foundational stuff I mean for instance the periodic table. Periodic table was the like the latest and greatest example of a long sequence of chem- alchemical tables like that. That described this sort of eightfold repeating nature of the elements, that was created by alchemists, not chemists. The alchemists were the ones who made a lot of the early what what I guess what things, discoveries that chemistry would now claim as its own. It was actually alchemists and not chemists who discovered a lot of those things. And ditto physics. Remember, Isaac Newton self-identified as an alchemist. He wasn't a scientist, he was an alchemist, as far as he was concerned. So a lot of those early inventions that gave rise to to modern society, they all sort of originated at this time. So gonna, does that make some kind of sense, mate? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still want to ask you the, the very basic question, what is alchemy? I mean there's a lot of history. We're gonna of, do that now. <laughs> yeah. We're <laughs> gonna a, do that. It's very a simple. A lot of history of its um, you know, evolution and where it's come from and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, yeah what it's influenced and you've got to come back to that point about economics as well
0: yeah sure so let's let's do both of those so first thing alchemy is a form of shamanism it's a degenerate form of shamanism that comes under the heading of esotericism what does shamanism mean for an established civilized settled society so alchemy shamanism is about energy change ultimately that's why the main podcast is called woven energy and why this one is called heretics by woven energy yeah that it's all about changes in energy. Now, human beings, given our nature, the sort of people we are, we are civilization builders. We don't just want to participate in the energy weave of nature, like shamans do. It tends to be not enough for us. We want to make things happen. We want to actively cause transformation. And that, the, this definition of alchemy is dead simple. Alchemy is the art of transformation. How do we transform things? Right, right. Now, briefly, on the economics front, the alchemical economics front, one of the things that early rulers found alchemists useful for was increasing their wealth and power. One of the things that, as part of the... Alchemy has a long experimental tradition, a lab-based part of its... Identity, yeah, and we're yeah. going to be doing this sort of stuff, we'll actually have some experiments that people can do and things like that, you know, oh, as we cool. go on with our tutorial. The lab-based portion of alchemy was never the foundation of alchemy. Alchemy is about transformation. What's the ultimate transformation? The ultimate transformation in the alchemical tradition is to transform the miasma into chelicity, ah. into a closeness to nature. Yeah. And the miasma in the alchemical tradition is called lead, and the Chalisti in the alchemical tradition is called gold. So the idea is in a spiritual sense, is to transform your miasmatic lead in your mm-hmm. spirit into a Chalisti closeness to nature, bright and vibrant gold. Yeah. The, the, and we're gonna talk about how, how that's done and all this kind of stuff, we're gonna go into that in a lot of detail. And also the, the experiments that were done in the lab in the alchemical times, the height of the alchemical days, were not separate from that idea. A lot of these things were seen as integrated. They did experiments that integrated the alchemist's spirit into the overarching experiment. We talked about this with different students, between and and shamanism, that kind of experimental altitude, which is, is where the, the shaman puts himself at the center of an experiment and contrasted that with the observer in a scientific experiment looking at the experiment from the outside in rather than from the inside out, like a shaman would do. Yeah, This was the same with alchemy. They wanted to be at the center of the experiment. And of course, the famous, probably the most famous chem- alchemical uh, experiments were revolved around mercury and sulfur. Mm. Those things were... But they're not mercury and sulfur in the sense that uh, they're just like the element mercury and the element sulfur, although it is interesting that they picked those two out as symbolic of the overall idea within alchemy, mercury and sulfur were the, were the, the kind of foundational idea within, within alchemy. It's interesting that the ion of sulfur is S2-, and the ion of mercury is H, Hg2+, plus. The, they're a double negative and double positive ion. When they combine together, what did they make? They make cinnabar mercury sulfide. Cinnabar being the thing that the, you know, Qin Shi Huangdi, there's another guy we've talked about, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, drove himself mad to ingesting cinnabar in order to achieve immortality. Yeah, Because a lot of these guys took this stuff a bit too literally, yeah? Mm. And in the chemical wedding, sulfur is the king, mercury is the queen, yeah. So, do you follow what I mean? It's, it's it's more than just the chemical element sulfur and the chemical element mercury that are the, the, which were important. The chemical elements themselves were important in the alchemical tradition. But it's a bigger picture than that. It's a yin and yang. It's a masculine and feminine. And in in the uniting of those two elements, the white queen and the red king, if you like, the production of cinnabar, this red, striking red mineral. Which has a, a a coloration like the blood, like the essence of life, as they saw it, was seen as uh, symbolic of the overall idea of bringing together yin and yang, into uh, into the the feminine nurturing supportive aspect, and the the masculine active volatile aspect. Sulfur is active volatile; it's fiery, right? Yeah. Whereas. Mercury needs some other active principle. It's a liquid. It's a cool liquid, but it's a liquid. It needs some active principle to shape it and, and do things with it. And they saw these two elements in the lab. They saw these two elements as tincturing. I am, This is the economic story, incidentally. They were tincturing elements. They could be used to affect the coloration of metals, as they saw it, to transform metals. And so you take a metal and you use combinations of sulfur and mercury and various of the weird and wonderful apparatus, you know, like the alembic and all the, the kind of modern scientific apparatus that was invented by people like Maria Prophetessa, these early alchemists. I wonder how many modern practicing chemists realize that the vast majority of the equipment they're using in the lab goes back to Talmud, Egypt, you know, huh. probably, you know, quite a a shocking statistic, anyway, so they used these two elements under those various processes to tincture metals to transform them to refine them to purify them, to move them towards a higher more perfect form and now we start to see the influence of plato right they they wanted to perfect metals to make them more uh, more than they could be in this uh, as a long part, side this idea of perfecting themselves by ridding themselves of the miasma lead and turning their inner spirit into a kind of pure shining gold that was the idea with mm. the with the tradition so they started messing around with stuff and what they found some of them and remember there's all the secrecy going on and different alchemists wanted to keep their secrets to themselves and not share them with other alchemists because these guys are employed by kings right or rulers now we're now talking about during the middle ages the medieval period if you're a king how's an alchemist useful to you well if he's a good alchemist he can turn lead into gold literally as far as you're concerned he can stuff your coffers full of money yeah. 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 And isn't that what medieval rulers tended to want? Coffers full of money, which pays for their soldiers, which helps them increase their territories, which helps them build kingdoms and empires and all that kind of stuff. So these alchemists got the, the, the survival of the alchemy into the Middle Ages was very much the king's pat, patronizing, patronizing mm-hmm. an alchemist or two to do stuff. Now, the king's still a bit suspicious of the alchemist, because the king's probably still like a, you know, a Muslim or a Christian or something. He probably thinks this little alchemist potentially in league with the devil, but if he can give me some gold, maybe he's not so bad, yeah? And so they probably had, um, actually they had um, special gallows, gold-plated gallows erected to execute alchemists who were unable to turn base metals into gold. Uh, on behalf of the king. So, you know, it was a dangerous line of work to get into if you couldn't actually do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm considering that, isn't it a bit impossible to turn base metals into gold anyway? So Well, it is and it isn't.
0: You've got to understand what the ancient Egyptians meant by gold. Right. They meant something very rarefied, very pure, very f- shining looking. So, if, if a me- to the Egyptians, if a metal had the properties of gold as far as they were concerned, it was gold, yeah? Right. Now that's very different from a modern scientific view of the elements, a modern, you know, um, uh, standard model based view of the elements. You know, gold is, gold has a certain atomic weight, it has a certain number of protons, a certain number of neutrons, and if it doesn't have that number of protons, then it's not gold. To these guys, that didn't matter at all. You imagine yourself a ruler during the, you know, the dark ages, or you're know, an ab ruler in the dark ages, or you're a Christian ruler somewhere, time after the Reconquista, what do I care? I, all I need is money. As long as the guy who I'm buying stuff off accepts the currency and as far, it's gold as far as he's concerned, right, right. then it's gold. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and what the what they found the ancient Egyptians and the early Alchemists found was these two particular elements mercury and sulfur were really useful in what they called tincturing metals, that is changing the physical characteristics through alloying and various other processes of metals. And some of them did indeed figure out how to transform various metals, including lead and others, into something that to the uninitiated, to a non to somebody who didn't have a lab basically yeah. was to all intents and purposes gold and there are people like Flamel, for instance the famous alchemist flamel who made themselves fabulously wealthy through this process now they're giving people gold what people assume is gold it's probably not gold yeah, but it yeah. didn't stop them getting very very rich yeah the poor souls who got executed were the ones who couldn't combine these things these and alloy these things in the right proportions to come up with something that convinced people was gold yeah and they used to mix some gold in the idea was generally the king would give the alchemist a small amount of gold the alchemist would use sulfur and mercury and various other and make various alloys and compare them the alloys that they'd made the properties of the alloys that they'd made back against the gold and if they were close enough then that was that was good enough the king would be happy be able to spend the gold in inverted commas that they'd made very interestingly, I saw recently that somebody had managed to make a very special alloy of gold and titanium that, that's completely non-reactive. This is modern, uh, that they're using for stuff like hip joint replacements and that kind of things because it's eight times stronger than steel and it's, um, it's completely non-reactive. Pretty useful. So, gold is coming back into use as a structural material. It's quite interesting because gold is famous as a soft material, right? And that's one of the tests they would do to check it was soft. Mm. So, so, this is what the Surfer and Mercury are about combining these things in different proportions with various metals and alloying other metals in. They could take a small amount of gold if they were good and they knew what they were doing and they could turn it into a large amount of gold. And that's how they made the money for the kings, basically, the ones that were successful.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I- I yeah, understand yeah. how how the, So this tradition, the sort of spiritual tradition, has also got this sort of um, chemistry side to it, and it, it's all and it's all the same. Exactly. Thing, really. yeah.
0: Exactly. So here's here's where the economics comes into it. Among these guys, there were two things. There were true alchemists who kept to the original spiritual aspects of the art they saw the lab as just a you know it's at the emerald tablet says as above so below the macrocosm corresponds to the microcosm they saw all their lab experiments and stuff as part of their personal spiritual development they were the true alchemists yeah mm. but there was another whole bunch of alchemists during the middle ages who were known as the puffers they were called puffers because they used to have these crucibles that they melted metals in and they were always puffing their bellows and these ones, the, the, puf, the term puffers came to be described, came to relate to charlatan alchemists. Right. And they became focused over time. So, so what they used to do basically was rather than go to all the bother of trying to come up with these exotic alloys that are going to fool people who could test it and see if it was real gold, what they used to do to impress kings and stuff is they'd just literally take a, a gold ball that was already gold, they'd put paint all over it to make it look like lead. They took it in their crucible, puff their puffer bellows, and it, the paint would burn off, and the king would be <laughs> fooled into believing that they'd produced pure gold. Yeah. Well, they had in a way but they already had the gold beforehand and that's how they ingratiated themselves with kings you know but then you know down the line when the kingdom becomes disillusioned i mean the litmus test is can you produce more gold than you consume isn't it that's the litmus test for a, yeah, yeah for a medieval alchemist you know but the king only finds that out much later after he's lavished presents on you and all sorts of stuff you know uh, and you've probably legged it within a few months and, and gone to the next king you know So the puffers changed the focus, the spiritual focus of alchemy, they changed it into a more product-based focus. They found that they could make other things for kings using their alchemical knowledge i mean the puffers did have alchemical knowledge they could make other things for kings that were really useful like well gunpowder for instance and they started taking the focus of alchemy as a discipline through so which somebody overcomes their internal miasma and moves towards spiritual gold towards chalicity and a, a, a oneness with nature they started seeing it as a process a pipeline through which products physical products that had a sale value could be produced and it was the puffers who gave rise to modern chemistry. But it was also the alchemists and the puffers collectively who gave to rise to economics through this way. The king of a country, said the UK, and the parliament decide they want to have a national bank. Yeah? Oh, it doesn't have to be the UK, any bank. Who really knows about gold and stuff? Yeah? Who are the most skilled people in gold? Who could we put in charge of a national bank? Who could we put in charge of a large sum of money that's held for our country in common oh let's put an alchemist in charge of it and this is why you find this weird stuff like people like mutant and Co becoming Or oh, you know it it, it 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 seems weird that people associated with alchemy would become be given charge of national banks but that's what happened and you can see why what is the king or the the Government, what do they want to do with what's in that national bank? They want to transform it into even more money. They want to use the money that's there and transform it into even more money using things like derivatives. You know, I'll sell you some risk. You know, Uh, as long as you give me an option on buying. Some, yeah. I don't know, shibri or something. You know, <laughs> They start coming up with these alchemical instruments. And out of that, that process, it's quite hard to transform gold into more gold. So we need to invent some other form of alchemical substance that we can transform into more money that's easier to make more of than it is to make more of gold. And so they started making paper. Paper money, which is basically a guarantee from the prince or the king or whoever, yeah. They sign off to say, yes, I said this is worth such an amount of money. They print a ton of those. And then they get on the, the phone to their, I guess there were no phones in those. days. They, they, they write a letter to their chief alchemist. We need more gold, in inverted commas. It just prints more paper. Yeah. And it worked. People were hoodwinked by this thing. And, mm-hmm. and governments to this day are still hoodwinking people with this, you know, this scam, for want of a better word. I promised to pay the bearer. You know, it says on the notes from the Bank of England, "I promise to pay the bearer so much money." And it's got the Queen's head on it. It'll be the King's head now soon. Mm. They they duped people into into doing this, and we still do it. You know, we're still happy with it. And now it's got even worse now, right? What's even easier to duplicate than paper? Um, just digits inside a computer, ones and zeros. Yeah. Uh, digital money cashless societies you know and then the the ruling class can then use that that alchemical economic system that they've created in order to control the rest of us to put us to keep us in our, our place you know and it's like the unofficial motto motto of the super rich keep them poor if we're all poor then we'll work for them for very little money you know and we'll be glad of our job because you know we need it and we'll, we'll live pay packet to pay packet we won't think about higher things more important things like you know, stuff they might think about, the, the ruling elites, because we're just focused on making ends meet all the time. And so this was the kind of birth of economics. And you can see that economics does not operate like shamanism. Economics would be all about how does money work? How does gold work? Um, how does it work within society? How does it work within trade? How does it work within commerce? But if you do an economics degree, you'll find that is not the focus. The focus of economics is just like the focus of alchemy is how do we transform this into something better, the focus of economics is how do we transform money into more money. Therefore, as I said, it's alchemical economics, and it literally came from alchemists. Wow, that's amazing!
1: So, I, I did not know that. That's the
0: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, chemistry not the only subject to drop out of this, as we'll see.
1: I guess though, if it, I mean, if it, if it's about trans, I can say if it's about transformation. You can apply it to literally any subject, can't you?
0: Um, Exactly, exactly.
1: There's no limit to what... But it's about, it's like,
0: I guess the thing that's different is in shamanism, it's about transformation as well, but it's about becoming part of the ongoing interplay of energies within the universe and and playing your part in the grand dance of the universe. Yeah. Whereas the the transformation within alchemy is much more focused on, this is human driven. Yeah. It's not. We're not trying to follow nature here. We're trying to use the knowledge of nature in order to do something that we want under for, our own For our, for our benefit, That's, I yeah. guess would be the difference. For our benefit, yeah. yeah, our perceived benefit. Well, for the benefit of some of us, right? Not necessarily others. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. It's not for the whole, is it? It's for the, the, the parts rather than the whole. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: And and you know, if you look at just read about Flamel, he's one of the most famous al- alchemists that ever lived. A relatively modern guy. Um, Oh J.K. You know, Rowling's that's, that's all all, all about
1: him. <laughs> she's she's got yeah, a lot there's of a, uh... it, there's
0: a lot of stuff. The quintessence, the fifth element. It's uh, who's in that movie? Uh, uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah. So, there's yeah. a lot of it pops into pop culture, but it's not really well understood in detail. But it's like it's like the imagery around it that's quite well under well known in the in the. I haven't watched any or read any of those books, the J.K. Rowling stuff. I'm quite impressed by her career. I do like that story, but not, and because I've worked in the publishing industry, it does ring true. That all the major publishers turned it down because they thought that those books would never sell. You know, uh, that does ring true to me. Having worked in the publishing industry, yeah, Harry Potter, The Goblet of Fire, or whatever it is. You know, well, the Philosopher's yeah. Stone. Oh, well, mean... incidentally, the Philosopher's Stone is is the thing. The Philosopher's Stone is the stone that when you cast it upon the base metals, they will be purified into pure gold. That's what the Philosopher's Stone is. Yeah. Oh right.
1: Okay. Do you know what? There's um there's a strange connection there. It was well, when I was thirteen, I wrote a computer game. Um, and it was called the Philosopher's Stone. Um, All right, cool. Yeah, and um, it was published by a, a company actually picked it up and published it. So you could buy it on one of those tapes. You know those old days of.
0: Oh um, yeah, yeah. Having tapes. That's awesome, pull, mate. Well yeah, done. For your
1: Acorn Electron. And, well
0: done. Yeah, but the company. I keep forgetting you're li- tech literate, mate. I keep forgetting. <laughs> well, uh, it's easy I to forget read, because I did...
1: I, I'm not very literate these days. But uh, yeah, I read I, I... your I
0: read your piece in the back of the latest. Em- em- what, Mac the latest episode of Mac Format. I read yeah, it. Yeah. It was really good, mate. It was really good.
1: Oh, you liked it? Oh, talk,
0: you were talking about history repeating itself, weren't you, with the Apple Silicon and all that stuff. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's because
1: I've been around in the tech industry cool so long now that I can actually write columns where I say, I remember this when it came around the first time. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But anyway, I was, I was going to say, um, so my, my game was published by this company called Potter Programs, and it was called The Philosopher's Stone. Oh, cool. So, obviously, J.K. Oh, Rowling... Cool would have been alive at the time and must have played it because she stole all my ideas. It,
0: she, she got the idea straight <laughs> off you, mate, I'm sure. I'm sure that's what happened. Um, but isn't it interesting? is it interesting? Yeah, it touches every aspect of our lives. So I think developing an understanding of alchemy I was trying to stay off the technical aspect of alchemy on this one, just to give a bit of background, because I'd like to do what we've done with the Woven Anti podcast—to introduce it one thing at a time, step by step process to build it up so it makes sense. Yeah, uh, I want to do that on the Heretics Alchemy tutorials as well.
1: Well, looking forward to it. I think it'll be—I think it'll be fun. So, looking forward to that.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed. Uh, as long as nobody thinks we believe all this stuff, <laughs> me and Graham. Well, that's why you called if it. We, an- did, we wouldn't be running this podcast
1: yeah, that's why he called it an exoteric religion wasn't it because it's it involves belief
0: yeah it does indeed it does indeed but if you're going to believe in something i'd rather believe in isis you know that's a she's a cool <laughs> goddess yeah so
1: yeah <laughs> or was it he said that all you, right there was it george was it george carlin that said he'd rather believe in the sun god because you can see the sun and it helps with the credibility
0: <laughs> that's right it helps with the credibility yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah Well, the sun god figures bigger than this as well the Sun God figure's bigger than this as well, as you'll see.
1: Oh, yeah. well, we'll look forward to a bit of raw. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Cool.
1: Should we call it, do that then, mate? Yeah, I think that's a good uh, introduction. We've, we've covered all the bases. People should know what alchemy is and where it came from. And then next time we can get to work yeah. with teaching a bit.
0: Well, as we talk through the things, we'll, we'll give a bit more, because, you know, as we'll talk about the alchemists who came up with these things as we came up with it. So there'll still be more history going forwards, but we'll do it more in a technical